23. Yeah, I didn't understand this until about 23. Mm. So you're getting it at 17, okay? So you already are six years ahead of my thinking, okay? <laughs> and that was because, you know, um, one technology, where we are, you know, I, although I think that where we are in the world, we're still kind of cycling back to the same things. So same social injustice, same no access to care, you know, lack of education, lack of exposure, they're the same things, but you're getting it earlier. And so when I was at Spelman, you know, I majored in biology pre-med and I majored in that because I was told that you had to be a hardcore science major in order to become a doctor. Mm -hmm. Well, when I finished up at Spelman, I actually didn't get into medical school that right out of Spelman. And part of it was that one lack of exposure. I didn't have any doctors in my family that's kind of telling me this is how you should do it, you know, or consider this. I just kind of went on what um, my parents instilled in me. My father was a chemistry major and he uh, graduated from college and he was the only second black in his school to graduate with a chemistry degree. And he considered medicine. And so he kind of guided me, was like, okay, we well, need to take these classes. So I took like Latin and I took all of the sciences. So he helped me leave with intention, but he didn't, and he actually got into medical school and didn't like it and left. So he didn't, couldn't guide me, you know, past a certain point. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to navigate this whole thing on my own. And I didn't have any doctors in the family. So I didn't have any exposure. I didn't have the language or how you apply or what you need to do until I got to Spelman. And it wasn't until sophomore year and the year that I got into Spelman, we had the highest number of science majors ever in the history of Spelman. So we had, you know, all of the engineer majors and all of the, so the, the science department wasn't beefed up. It was still very heavily liberal arts. So they were, we were their test studies in a sense. So Morehouse kind of had it together, but Spelman didn't. We didn't have the connections in place. So by sophomore year, they're telling us we need to take the MCAT. And we're like, what's the MCAT? You know, <laughs> what is that test? You know, and you're just like, oh my God, I got to take a test to get in? Like, I clearly was just in the dark about the application. I knew that you had to apply, but I didn't understand there was a qualifying exam to get in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I... Um, I didn't get in straight out. So I had to figure it out along the way. And what I did was I, I went to Columbia and did a post-baccalaureate program for a semester. And, um, and it just, it just didn't feel right. You know, New York was very high paced coming from Atlanta, pre-Olympic Atlanta and going to New York was just, whew. and you know, I'm from Baltimore. So I'm used to kind of fast pace at ADC. So I, it was just like night and day. And then the cost of living was a lot and, you know, the classes I was taking were more master's level classes and it just didn't seem like they would really make sense. In hindsight, they did. So I was only there for a semester. And then I went back to Baltimore and taught school for a year and quickly realized that that was not my ministry at all. Mm -hmm. Their behavioral problems, I was just like, no, I can't do this. I have to teach them in another format. And that's when I went and got my master's in public health from GW. Mm -hmm. So I got a um, master's in epidemiology. Um, but I was doing it to beef up my application for the next. Um, uh, and retook the MCAT. Um, but I say all this to say 
that if I had started out with this exposure and also starting out with the notion that, you know, there are many ways to get to medicine, my thought process would have been different. Now I wouldn't change it because obviously it's what I needed to get to where I am today, but having had some guidance prior to would have been nice. So I felt like I was charting this territory for um, that was uncharted. I was just figuring it out. And all of my other friends were figuring it out too, because they were getting in and not getting in and having to reapply. So we're talking amongst ourselves about what worked with some people, what did, what, you know, but no one to, to, to lead us. You know, we were kind of leading ourselves. So, um, which is why I love talking to students like you, because I was you and I wish I had someone like me to guide me along the way. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be hard because it takes a whole year to get into medical school. So when you don't get in, you're now trying to figure out your life for a whole year ahead with hopes that you'll have everything in place to get in for the next cycle. Well, it took me, ooh, I want to say I, I was an untraditional medical student, so I didn't get in until I was 28. Okay. So I got my master's degree. After I got my master's degree, I went to, back home to Baltimore and worked in research at Johns Hopkins. And I did uh, three years of clinical research at Johns Hopkins, um, which were, you know, were great. And they kind of like helped me. And as I look back, they were definitely needed. I couldn't see that I was gonna need this research experience in the capacity that I did. Um, it was just by blind faith, like, okay, I need a job. Let me take this job. I needed to get my, you know, application ready for medical school, but not knowing that I would use it probably five years later. So my first research experiment was, um, I'm studying, was with HPV and pap smears. We were looking at how to add um, the HPV study to the existing pap smear, because at that time that wasn't done. And I was working with a postdoctoral fellow and we were trying to, you know, um, advocate for adding the HPV test, which eventually several years later was added. So I felt like that work was, you know, kind of like, you know, pinnacle in the sense of helping to, to launch that to become a standard of care now in OBGYN. So I did that for about a year and a half. And then I moved over to the School of Medicine, where I did two other um, clinical trials looking at pancreatic cancer um, vaccine. It was a vaccine study. And then um, working with HIV patients. And um, with that one, we were um, doing some trials on Kaposi sarcoma, which is the skin manifestation of HIV. Mm -hmm. And but during this whole time, I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Mm. So when I was at Spelman, everyone knew that I was going to medical school to be this orthopedic surgeon. There weren't many women orthopedic surgeons. I had grew up playing basketball like all my life. So when I stopped playing, the natural thing in my mind was like, oh, do something that's sports related. So, you know, but I'm not getting into medical school. So I'm still like, okay, well, what do I need to do to beef up my, my resume? Cause I got to do this to become an orthopedic surgeon. Cause I know I want to, you know, do medicine. And so I'm working in all these areas that to me at the time didn't make sense, but it was, it the purpose was, you know, to get into medical school. Mm -hmm. Well, during that time also, I was always into skin and always into hair. So 
when I was at Spelman, I was the campus hairstylist. I don't know if your mom told you that, but like if you lived in DC or Maryland, you knew how to slay some hair or Detroit, okay? We all knew hair and like that was a rites of passage, baby, to go to the hair salon and you were there all day long. So while I was there, I would just watch the hairstylists and how they would style hair. And when I got to Spelman, I started doing hair because my brother was at Howard, my sister was at Delaware State. And my parents, we were all a year apart. So my parents were like, look, we got three of y'all in college at the same time. Don't ask us for no money. Okay, <laughs> You have your meal ticket, <laughs> leave us alone. And so but my mother said, girl, all of those women down in Spelman, somebody needs their hair done and you're all, you know how to do hair. So that's how I became my campus hairstylist. I put up my price list, put it on my door at Man, and I was lived in Manly and I was in Manly room 106. And so, and I made sure my hair was laid girl. So, cause I was my walking billboard. I was my walking brand. And so people would say, well, who did your hair? And I'm like, girl, I did. Oh, can you do my hair? I sure can. I'm in no pagers, no cell phones. You, you going to class. So you, how are you making these appointments? Hey, I'm in Manly room 106. You could be there. I get out of class at such and such time. I'll go straight there and I'll wait for you. That's how I got my <laughs> When I say y'all have it easy, oh, y'all have it easy. And so I started having these longstanding um, clients that would come every two weeks and they would get their hair done and I would style their hair. But in my mind, I'm going to be this orthopedic surgeon. Well, then I graduated and then I discovered makeup. That's when Mac came on the scene and I was like all into Mac and and along the way, all of my Spelman friends were getting married. I'm still in school, remember? They're getting married. And I'm like, well, I can't afford to be in your wedding, pay for this dress, come to the bridal shower, come to the wedding. But what I can do is your makeup. So I'm going to do everybody's makeup. You don't have to hire anyone for makeup. I'm going to do everyone's makeup, including the mothers and the flower girls. And that was my gift to my friends. So that's how I kind of started on the, the journey of more like skin things. And um, so when I got into medical school, still wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And in my third year, I finally got to the rotation because I didn't know any orthopedic surgeons to shadow them. It was just all in my mind. And I hated it. I, I hated it. I got there and this is where it comes kind of full circle where you were saying that, you know, I'm not sure where I'm headed, but for now, this is what I want and why I always told people to never put yourself in a box. But then I had to then start listening to my own advice because that was truly my mantra. I truly believed it in my core that you have to create your own experience. Don't let someone tell you, you have to do it a certain type of way. And how I learned that is because I was under this notion that in order to get into medicine, you had to take these hardcore sciences. But then I realized I had those hardcore sciences and I still wouldn't get it in. So I had to add these other things to the mix to, to reach my goal. So, but at that point in time, I think it became very, very crystal clear because I had gotten on this rotation and this rotation in particular in ortho, you have to wear like this fan on top of your head and you kind of like are in full PPE, right? Where you have this space suit on and in there, it's literally like carpentry work. So they're like intentionally breaking bones and they're sawing, they're like bone bits flying all over the place. And they have this fan to keep you cool. And, um, I just remember I had allergies and my nose is like running like a, like a faucet. 
Okay, I'm feeling gross. <laughs> Luckily, it's under the mask, but I know I can't touch my face because I'll break the surgical field, right? So I'm just standing there and you're a student, so they don't let you do much. You know, I'm like retracting probably the poor guy's hip or whatever. And I'm in there with the attending, I'm in there with the fellow and they're doing everything. Then I saw the, the fellow uh, go to use the mallet and he hit the attending's finger. So he's like yelling in pain. And I'm like, wait, all these bone bits, they's flinging all this stuff. People getting hurt in here. They breaking bones on purpose. And my nose is running. I'm like, I'm too girly for this. I, <laughs> I got to do this for 20 years. This is what I thought I wanted to do. Oh, no. Uh -uh. I can't do it. It just was not that fascinating to me. But in my mind, I thought I wanted to do it. Right? Mm -hmm. So I literally, like, almost lost it, like, going into my fourth year of medical school. Because I was like, I have built myself up for this since I was five, mm -hmm. right? Like I like intentionally set things up, had these pitfalls along the way, didn't get in like I wanted to, got a master's degree, did research for all the time to get here, to get here and realize I don't like it. Like, what? Oh my God. And so I remember talking to some of my friends, one of my friends is some, um, went to Morehouse and he was a, a resident in uh, the same city that I went to medical school. I went to Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, and he was a family practice resident. And I remember sitting in his, in his apartment with him and his wife, and he was like, what? I don't understand. Why aren't you doing something dermalated? He was like, you know, I can just see it. He was like, you're going to come out with your own like makeup line. And I was like, well, I do that stuff for fun. What are you talking about? And they're looking at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and it's still not clicking. <laughs> so I'm supposed to be an orthopedic surgeon and I don't like it. What do you mean? And then I had a moment of clarity and I was like, oh my God, you got to stop putting yourself in this box. You got to figure out what it is you truly like. And that's when I started realizing, I was like, I really like skin and hair. That's what, that's what I, I could do that without, it, it just feels joyful. I don't have to look at the clock. Like what time is this rotation over? Like, when are we going to leave? You know, it, it, it wasn't, you know, hard for me. Mm -hmm. And so, but at the time I, you know, didn't know any dermatologists. I hadn't even considered it. And for dermatology, if orthopedic is hard, dermatology is harder because there are so few spots. There may be like two spots in a whole hospital setting that they'll train two residents per year, maybe four per year. So I was like, man, I'm behind the eight ball now because I'm a fourth year and I want to do derm, mm -hmm. but I have no clue. And I went on a derm rotation. I loved it. Went on plastics rotation. I loved it. And I knew I didn't really want to do plastics because I was like, I don't want to do five years of general surgery to get to the skin. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, well, let's do derm. So I applied to residency, but I only applied to two programs. So I'm a person that if I like a place, I don't need to see all the things. I don't, I have ADD. I don't need all these options. Uh -huh. I only applied to Spelman. Mm -hmm. That was my only school I applied to. And how I applied to that, I know I'm kind of all over the place, but I'm gonna bring it back together. But my classmate um, forfeited her senior year you know, you can go to Spelman as a 16 year old. And she went to Spelman because her older sister was at Spelman. And I went to go visit her my senior year in high school. And when I went on campus, I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. 
it just felt like good in my gut. I was just like, ooh, it's so sudden. I feel like this is home for me. And I went to an all-girls high school, an all-girls public high school. And I was just, but I, my mother wanted me to go to Spelman. I was like, I don't want to go to another all-girls school. I'm already at one. Like, can I be around some dudes, please? And she was like, well, more houses across the street. I'm like, but it ain't the same. At least in my head, I'm thinking. But I went there and fell in love. And that was the only school I applied to. I applied early decision. And I didn't get in early decision. So, but it gave me more of a look for regular decision. And I remember that whole year was playing basketball and, and you know, trying to say, and I got to be a surgeon, but I want to go to this school. And all of these schools are sending me their information. And I was like, I don't want to go to Maryland. I don't want to go to, you know, even with scholarship, I was like, I want to go to Spelman. And the day I was considering sitting down to doing my application was the day I got my acceptance letter. I was like, oh my God. And that's when I knew, okay, I know one, I have the power either to manifest some stuff or this is exactly <laughs> where I'm supposed to be. So I did that. And so now back into medical school, I only applied to two programs for residency. Mm -hmm. After being at Spelman mm -hmm. and you are in a utopia, right? Mm -hmm. In, in, you know that you are smart enough and you could do whatever you want to now fast forward being in a PWI mm -hmm. and they're making you feel small mm -hmm. and um, the learning is just, and I'm an older student. Mm -hmm. So the learning is hard, but then you have this other um, pressure to perform at a level that your other peers aren't. Constantly feeling like you have to wear a mask, you know, being careful about what you say, how you say it, you know, all of that. It was, I was like, I, I'm applying to two programs. It's Meharry and Howard, because I need to be in the bosom of some Black folks again, okay, that want to teach me and, and we're going to communicate in a way that we understand each other. I'm not perceived as this angry person because I may have said something a certain way, or if something said to me, I'm not internalizing it in a way that may not have been intended, right? So I needed to be in a more comforting, nurturing environment. And I knew I could get that at Harry or Howard. So those are the only two programs I probably to, but Harry's program, I didn't get into, this was an internal medicine program because for dermatology, you have to do a year of internal medicine, three years of derm. And so, but I didn't have a dermatology residency because I didn't match because why? I was just, I just decided like two days ago and everybody else had been planning it from the womb and I didn't know. So I was happy I got into Howard and the reason I decided DC, one, it was closer to home, but they also had a bunch of programs, dermatology programs in the city. So I said, I think I had more of a shot if I at least go there, show my face, show what I can do. And so that's how I ended up there. And, but got there and realized like two programs closed so then I was down to only applying to, I think, maybe three. It was George Washington, Howard, and uh, GW. Well, in these programs, they're going to give preference to their students. Mm -hmm. So I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> what? Which I understand. You know, I get it now. If you're, you're at their program and they're training you. Why aren't you going to give a nod to your own you know, your own child, if you will, right? So here you have this outsider coming in, trying to buy for one of those two spots. Mm -hmm. So I had to then bring it a full circle, say, Saida, you cannot put yourself in a box. You got to figure this out because the end 
what you're trying to do is to get to this end goal, but you have now a choice and you have some roadblocks there, but you're still trying to get here to this end goal. And we're not going to stop getting to this end goal. That ain't what you've been taught. Because we don't take no for an answer. My mother never took no for an answer. My father didn't. There are many ways to skin a cat. Spellman did not teach that. We get into this end goal because that's what I want. And I know I can have it. So I said, okay, what do I do? So I did the year of internal medicine. Every elective I did in dermatology so I could be in their face. I made connections along the way. So in the community, I made connections. And I begged this dermatologist in DC who trained at Howard. And he actually, um, after he finished at Howard, he went to Harvard and did a fellowship in laser surgery and helped to develop the lasers that are used in skin of color. Mm -hmm. And the derm residents, and I would rotate with the derm residents, we would go to his office and I just begged him. I was like, man, let me just like, can I just shadow you? And you ain't gonna pay me nothing. I'm just gonna come, I just wanna be over your back. And I will open up your office every Saturday. He's like, I can't afford to overpay staff. Like, okay, well, can I just come down here and just watch you? So um, I now am finished up my intern year at Howard, but I'm an NIH clinical research fellow in the hospital. And I'm now asking to do extra work outside of that research experience. So as an NIH research fellow, you have a preceptor, someone that's over you kind of guiding your research. So I knew I wanted to do DERM. I was like, well, I'm going to do something DERM related. Well, my boss was the assistant vice president of the hospital. So now I'm getting all of this healthcare administration experience that I never would have seen the back end of how hospitals work. She was connected to the political scene and she was an infectious diseases doctor. And I got a chance to work in the HIV clinic and crack my own research, which was going to be skin related diseases associated with HIV. Mm. So remember, six, seven years ago, I did HIV research at Johns Hopkins in Kaposi sarcoma. You couldn't have told me back then that it was gonna come full circle. You could not have told me I was gonna be working in HIV. I didn't even know I wanted to do dermatology, right? right? So here we are now full circle, but I had all these touch points along the way, but I had to figure it out. I didn't have the mentor saying, hey girl, consider this. I had friends that were like, maybe you should consider this, but I didn't have anyone guiding me along the way. But I still made a full circle moment there. So I decided to do my research at HIV, but then I was also gonna go the extra mile and I was gonna beg these dermatologists, black dermatologists in the DC area to teach me what they knew in exchange for my time. Because when you're that age, you have no value because you don't know nothing. <laughs> so you don't have any level of expertise to bring to nobody's business, but you got time. So I was willing to trade my time for knowledge. So they were like, sure, we could always use an extra hand. So I would go down there. Literally, I would be on the train, girl, sweating, trying to get to the office because they had patients. And I was literally for two years straight, I shadowed this man in his office, him and his wife, his other nurses, and was like, what do you need? Where do you need me to go? Let me, okay, this patient is waiting. Let me go talk to this patient since you're running behind. You know, I'm just doing all the things. 
but I'm learning along the way because now I'm a sponge and I'm just, I'm immersed in dermatology, even though I don't have a residency. Mm-hmm. But I'm still applying a residency, you know, for dermatology. I'm getting interviews, but I'm not matching. And I remember the, the doctor telling me, he said, his name is Dr. Battle. He said, Saida, you are doing dermatology now. And I was just like, well, you're right. I'm doing term right now. Saida, you got to stop putting yourself in a box. Why do you feel like you have to do dermatology this way? So here we are having another full circle moment. Like you don't have to do dermatology the way that everybody else is doing dermatology. Mm-hmm. And during the time my husband was in residency too, and then he got a fellowship in San Francisco. We're like married and now I'm pregnant with our second child. And I had to make a decision like, what do I do with my life? And he's like, girl, you need to finish up a residency because one year ain't going to cut it, you know? And that's when Dr. Battle was like, listen, you're doing derm. Give it maybe two, four years. If you get it, great. If you don't, you're doing dermatology now. There is a way to do it. There are many people doing it in many different ways. So he could, he had the foresight because he was a, um, what we call a key opinion leader around the world speaking with derm. So he's interfacing with different practice models and, you know, different types of providers that are doing the aesthetic thing. Um, and I had to say, okay, Saida, what is it about dermatology that you like? And I realized I didn't like the general dermatology, like the, the skin cancers and the psoriasis. That didn't fascinate me. What fascinated me was the cosmetics. Why? Because I was the hair girl. I was the makeup girl. That's what fascinated me, right? And so I had to say, okay, Saida, you have got to stop putting yourself in a box because now you have five years of dermatology experience that no one, no one else has this experience unless they're a resident. But not only that, you're now enriched with treating skin of color because you've been trained by all of these skin of color doctors that you can take wherever. Like people would pay top dollar to do this. And I was learning things that even the dermatology residents were getting. Yeah. Because they were, because I was able to be at this doctor's office, they still had to do their other rounds in the hospital. So when it was time for them to graduate, they were calling me up and saying, hey, Saida, can you teach me how to use this laser? Can you teach me how to do this? And I was like, this is so ironic and funny. I want to be in their shoes, but they're wanting something from me. And they would actually call me the dermatology resident without a residency because I was doing all the things with them, but I didn't have a residency. But the beauty of it was that I was getting everything that I needed to practice it in the way I wanted to. And I didn't have to put myself in a box so I could create it exactly how I wanted to create it. Mm-hmm. So that's a full circle moment I want you to see. Like you create your own destiny because if I listened to everyone else or what they were feeding me, I would think, oh, I gotta be a doctor this way in order to do it. I gotta, you know, major at this thing and I gotta be in the hospital setting. I gotta do, and that was not my journey. That's not what I wanted ultimately. I knew I wanted a practice that would be more of a retail type of practice. So when I, I, once we moved here to Memphis, I entered back in the residency, but as a family practice resident, because I knew I wanted to look at the body holistically because what I realized was lacking in dermatology is that they knew the skin, but I know the skin relates to every other organ system. 
but you don't have enough knowledge to know how those things kind of work and play hand in hand. So I said, okay, well, let me do this residency and family practice. But when I opened up my practice, it's going to be a skin a skin or aesthetic practice, cosmetics and aesthetics practice. But now I have all this experience in family practice, research, dermatology, that I can now talk to my patient in a way, skin of color, that I can talk to patients in a way that other stations. So it makes me almost like a unicorn and unique, especially in the Memphis area, because there were two other black dermatologists here, they were older and one retired and another moved to California. So then I was uniquely positioned where I'm the only black person here practicing and focusing on skin of color, which is probably why the chick was hate Dorby because she was like this heifer, hold up. <laughs> she didn't do dermatology. She's not a dermatologist. She just come on in here and now she will scoop up all these black folks. That's what I think she was thinking. And I'm saying to myself, lady, run your race and I'm gonna run mine because what you do don't affect me. What I do doesn't affect you. Mm -hmm. And, but it took me time to get there. And I'm not talking about the mindset that went around that because along the way, you know, I, I would, I would get upset because it's like, I'm running this race. I'm trying to keep up with the pack with the rest of my friends that are applying and they're getting in, but I'm not getting in. I know they're not smarter than me. What am I doing wrong? So I'm second guessing myself. So now you see how this journey you've gone through in high school with your friends is the same journey I'm going through as well. But as an adult, if you're getting it now, Mm -hmm. it, it, it hurts. It does. <laughs> it's painful, but it's making you stronger and it's helping you get to where you need to be. And you have a blueprint of where you want to go, but just remember the blueprint may change and you decide how it changes. Mm -hmm. Okay. You decide how it changes, but the ultimate, the, the goal is to get where you ultimately want to be, but um, the picture may skew some, but keep your eye on the prize. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that is my journey of getting to medicine and how I got to where I am today and practicing in the way that I, I wanted, which is why my journey wasn't straightforward. I didn't go straight from Spelman into medical school. I took all of these curves and turns, but I needed to, cause I had to pick up all this knowledge and experience along the way. So that when I talk to patients, like it feels so good to talk to people about skin because I can look at them and know exactly how I want to build out a regimen for them, how they need to change their diet and guide them along the way so that they can achieve their ultimate skin result or their ultimate hair results. But I think if I had gone straight through, I would have missed out on a lot of good, good information that I could give to my patients. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything happens for a reason. And you're for sure. a great example of that. It's so funny that you bring up wanting to be an ortho first, because that's what I wanted yeah. to do at first. Really? <laughs> Originally, I wanted to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon because oh, yes. fourth grade was when I broke my ankle clear cut. And mm. that was simultaneously the year that we were studying anatomy. And so I was like, oh. the only kid in my class that was like, oh, that's a femur. That's this, that's this, that's this. And yeah, <laughs> in my class was like, girl, how does she know? How do you know that? 
And I had gone to the doctor, uh, my ortho at the time, and I was telling him all my knowledge about all the bones and muscles in the body. And he was like, you know more than our nurses here. Well, you might as well take care of And so that inspired me. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, this is what I want to do. But then I became the hair girl, the skin girl in middle oh, yeah. school. I dealt with acne like six, like soon as I started my cycle. So yes. I was trying to understand a little bit more about myself and then right I taught a lot of my peers about their hair and their skin and they're like oh my gosh like what do I need to do for my routine and I was like yes help you so I was like okay well that okay well this is something that I like something that I want to do right and so I've spent a lot of time with dermatologists because I've struggled with acne for a really long time so mm-hmm. just having those relationships with the people that I've worked with have also been like, okay, well, yes, this is definitely something that I want to do. Oh, I definitely nice. am interested in the cosmetics route as well. Um, yes. Owning a practice. So you're me in a few years. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. You know, it's so funny you say that too, because it's almost like we're 10, 20 here. When I, how I discovered I wanted to do um, medicine as well, I was in kindergarten and I was in half day kindergarten. And I remember my mother was talking on the phone and I was like, this lady about to make me late for school. And so I grabbed my brother who was a year younger than me. And so we, we lived on the hill. So we bounced down like three flights of steps and we get in the car, no keys and pulled the, I pulled the car into reverse and we lived on the hill. So it, the car started tra- moving backwards, so, you know, uh, drifting backwards. And I freaked out and I jumped out of the car and my brother, who was four, but obviously knew more about cars than me, put it in park. When he did it, my trap between the car door and the tree. And I knew I broke my leg. I was like, oh my God, by this time my mother's like screaming and coming out the house. And I'm like, I broke my leg. And she was like, how do you know? I'm like, I just know. I just, I can't step on it. But I can vividly see the, the pediatric orthopedic surgeon's office. I can't see his face, but I can see like the stainless steel bowl. They use like old school cast uh, plaster to make your cast. Like I can see literally all of it. And that's when I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I knew I wanted to be ortho as well. Mm-hmm. I was like, I want to do this. Well, probably ortho a little later because I think I knew I'm going to be a doctor, but there were the two of my other girlfriends I went to elementary school, middle school, and high school with, we all wanted to be doctors. And they all wanted to do pediatrics. And only one is a, is a pediatrician. But I didn't, you know, change from pediatrics to wanting to do ortho. And um, then wind up getting into skin and hair. So we do, we share like the same story almost. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, I love it. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about your additional training, like your master's in public health? Yes. Um, research and things like that and how that's informed your practice now. Right. Absolutely. So um, remember, I told you I did a post-bac program in, in New York and then moved back to Baltimore. And I was teaching at the time and realized that, I, you know, and, and that was only a temporary job just to kind of transition me in, you know, while I was applying for medical school, because like I said, it takes a year. So I was like, okay, well, I'll do some teach as a science teacher. And I was a substitute teacher. And when I realized that I didn't want to do that while I was applying, I said, okay, well, let me go ahead and look at this master's program at George Washington. And I knew that um, I liked math and epidemiology kind of fascinated me. I didn't like the tracks that they had. I think it was like maternal child health and um, K 
can't remember the other track, but they didn't fit. So remember my mindset is I'm trying to get into medical school. What do I need to do that's going to beef up my application? So I went into the master's degree, not really, to be honest, intentional enough to use it because that was not my goal. My goal was just to get something on paper to get into medicine. It didn't become clear how I would use it until later. Okay. So I got my master's degree and with that mass, and I did it in a year. So the reason I did this program, because GW had just started the program and there was an accelerated program. And um, I was like, perfect. So I can get this master's degree in a year and have this on my application. But the cost of living in DC was astronomical. So I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna have to commute to DC to do this. So, and this is how bad I wanted it because I knew I could get it. I had to catch the bus to the Mark train station, catch the Mark train in the DC, and then from the Mark train to the subway to DW, and then do the reverse. (laughs) And I was in school all, and and it was accelerated, right? So you're taking all these courses because the goal is to finish in a year. So I did all, I was there probably from 10 in the morning until I didn't get home till 10 at night because I think the last train in DC left at like nine something. And I did that for an entire year because mm-hmm. I was driven. I was like, I'm gonna get this the daggone it. We getting this degree and because I need to get in medical school because I only got a year because I, the application is due. Well, with that um, master's, you had to do a, um, you had to do a project at the end of the year. And so when I was matched with the person I was going to do my project, it just happened to be the lady at Johns Hopkins. And so I thought I was just going to be on her study for like, you know, a couple of months to complete my master's degree. Well, when I didn't get in that, that application cycle, she hired me full time to stay on as her assistant. So then I'm in, I have the privilege of working at Johns Hopkins. Who wouldn't want that, right? To now have on my resume or on my application as a research, you know, component to add to my application cycle. So I wound up doing that for, like I said, about three years. And um, it was just perfect because I was now in an academic setting with like, you know, all of the stellar, you know, clinicians in the world, the, the thinkers, the medical thinkers in the world. You know, it was nothing to see like Ben Carson walking down the hallway or Dr. Levy who helped to, to make the um, cardiac defibrillator walking down the hallway. And I made it a point too. I was like, well, let me go and see if I can schedule a meeting to talk to them. And I would go and get advice from them. And, you know, they, they were a little instrumental, but not a whole lot. You know, they can only, they couldn't get me into medical school, but to, at least to have those conversations that kind of fueled me along the way and say, keep pushing because you're on to, you're like almost there. Mm-hmm. So I did that for three years. And I will say probably the person that was most impactful was a, a, a doctor at Johns Hopkins. His name was Dr. Richard Ambinder. And this guy had an MD and two PhDs. Oh. His resume was like a book. And I was so fascinated by him. He was a um, HIV, he was the guy that I worked on his HIV study. And he was, um, you know, he was super smart and he was a key opinion leader and, and he was like the key lead on a lot of phase um, two and three clinical trials. 
And um, I worked for him part-time, but also worked on his vaccine study. And in that experience, what I learned was that one, two, you run your own race and you got to run your race. Because I distinctly remember when I got into medical school. So when you're at Hopkins, everybody's trying to get into medical school. Everybody's doing research to get into medical school, right? So you really, it's like, you don't talk about it because you don't want the person you're working for to know you're really applying. And so I was kind of like hushed that I was, at least for the medical, the medicine side. When I worked for one of these uh, school of public health doing the HPV research, they knew I was applying to medical school. But when I didn't get in and I now moved to, because that study was over, I moved to the school of medicine side, I became more hushed. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I remember when I got into medical school, I went and told the vaccine trial uh, attending, it was a woman. And I told her, I said, listen, you know, I got into medical school. I'm only going to be here for about three more months. And she was so angry at me. Mm. I was like, wait, I'm going to be like you. Like, (laughs) I would expect you to be happy. She was angry because she had to now find someone to do my job. And I remember asking her, I said, could you not tell Dr. Ambine? I want to tell him myself because I already felt uncomfortable. I knew I was like abandoning their you know, their, um, their baby, which was their research. But at the same time, I had to be selfish for myself because I want to become a doctor as well. So I can't, you know, stay here and further their research, further their career for their own gain. But, you know, I'm not, I'm dimming my light, right? Right. So that she can shine. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I was just, you know, kind of, it was a little jarring. I was just like, okay. And it kind of messed with me a little bit that day. Well, the next day I'm walking down the hall and I see Dr. Ambinder approaching me and I'm like, oh God, I now have to tell this man that I am not going to be working for him anymore. And I'm only going to be here for a couple of months. And do you know, like he's screaming from the end of the hall. He's like, and I was Dr. Martin. I mean, I was, uh, uh, Martin at the time was my name. He was like, Saida, I heard you medical school. This is like, hey, here's one lady mad that I got in, but this man who is so acclaimed, he has this is an MD with two PhDs. This man is like on the major HIV trials that is literally pushing HIV forward in the HIV world. Like, and he's celebrating me. And that right there, I was just like, wow, I, this is so eye-opening. It was such a learning moment because he realized that you run your own race. Like I'm already acclaimed. Why would I stop someone else from running their race? Right? And he was celebrating. And like from the end of the hall, meanwhile, this other lady is over in her office brewing like, Argh. Now I can't finish my research because I got to find someone to do her job now. It's <laughs> just like, lady, you know? Mm-hmm. And I use that experience even to this day because I do um, urgent care work in addition to my practice. And I constantly remind myself, I can only give the urgent care so much time because I can't build their brand and further their business and take away from my own business. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I'm now running their race. I'm not running my own race. I got to run my own race. Mm-hmm. But those are like the life lessons that, you know, you could have told me that that's how 
you know, as long as you're, you're, you're open to receive the lesson, that was the lesson I learned that this man, and I didn't even know he was that acclaimed until I had gone to a, um, when I started working with them, uh, Novartis, which is a huge um, um, pharmaceutical company, similar to like Merck and Pfizer. And um, I was on his trial and they flew us out to Florida to discuss the trial. And so I remember they were saying that the investigators weren't there, you know, who were running the trial. The investigators weren't there. They were late. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, well, when are these investigators going to get here? Because we're running late, you know? And then in walked my boss. And I was like, oh, I didn't know I worked for the man, man. <laughs> I was like, clueless. Cause you know, you're just kind of, my goal was to get into medicine. Okay, I got this job. Let me just do this job. I didn't know how big of a deal this dude was. This guy literally had hundreds of people in the room waiting for him to discuss this clinical trial because this clinical trial was going to guide how this pharmaceutical company was going to put out their drug. That's a, that's a big deal. Right? <laughs> and this is also the same guy who was celebrating the fact I got into medical school. Why? Because he's like, I got mine. Why am I going to stop her from getting hers? Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, when I tell you, when I, you know, and I'm only like really coming to some of these revelations, even to sharing it with you, you know, like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't even realize that that's how I got here. You know, now that I'm kind of talking it out and talking it through. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's how I, I got my master's degree and how I wind up applying that to what I do now, you know, because I was doing the hair stuff, like I said, at Spelman and doing it for fun. And then once I made the shift, once I got into medicine that I didn't want to do orthopedic surgery, I had to kind of go back on all of those life lessons to figure out how I wanted to practice medicine. But like I said, it was painful because during the time I wasn't getting into a residency spot. I was, I would interview, but it's so stiff. It's similar to you applying to Spelman with 11,000 applicants and they only have 400 spots. Well, imagine 5,000 applications for two spots. Mm -hmm. And this is across the nation and they only have, I think it's like a hundred and 50 spots, but 5,000 people are applying for those 150 spots. Mm -hmm. So, you know, year after year, you're just like, oh, I know I have what it takes, but really it's math. Like, you know, how do you decide who gets those coveted spots? So I had to say, okay, Saida, how do you want to achieve your goal? Like, do you want to keep chasing these few spots and now you have more applicants every year or do you really want to create your own destiny and do it your way yeah and that's when I decided I got to do this my own way why because I still got that goal and we gonna get it we still go <laughs> the goal has not changed just the path there has changed mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yep how do you see yourself applying some of the knowledge that you gained in public health school and some of your research now to what you do um, in dermatology? Yes. Okay. So when you think about public health mm -hmm. and we talk about epidemics, right? We think of mainly the larger epidemics like, you know, of course, COVID now, which is more applicable during when I was in school, it was more tuberculosis, HIV. Those were the bigger, you know, epidemics. But when you talk about something that's skin related, an epidemic could be, say, 
um, hyperpigmentation in skin of color or acne, right? And so you have to use the same methodology of um, how you read research papers and how you apply it to your patient. So what I learned was in when I did research, it was um, clinical research, which clinical research is different than bench or lab research. Clinical research actually looks at the patient and the application of what you're learning in research and applying it to the patient. So what I now critically do when I read my research articles and journals and looking at all the new literature, when I talk to my patient during that consultation, I can now use that to apply to my approach to how I treat them. And that's what they're going to teach you in medicine is how to apply your theory to now a clinical setting, but knowing that each person is different, each person is individualized. So I can now approach them uh, more humanistically, um, knowing that they're different than the next person. Maybe what I'm trying out on them may not work. So I got to, you know, try something different and keep reworking it until I get to the right regimen or right um, uh, routine for them to achieve their ultimate skin result. Mm -hmm. So that's how I would say my master's degree um, has helped me. What helps me in um, uh, even looking at products and um, reading through the literature. So I am one, when I see a product, I'm always gonna look at the science. Like I'm looking at the ingredients, what do the ingredients do? And um, figuring out how to match them up with other things. And so um, I become a little more methodical in my approach to medicine because of my research. Um, also in how, and I would say this is probably to a fault, what happens you become, your writing changes because when you're in research, you're constantly writing from a research perspective. And so I can edit words down, but I can also, when you're doing research, you have to bring it down to a fifth grade level. And so um, I now make it a point that when I'm explaining things to my patients, that I'm explaining it in layman's terms because I know that I don't want to talk above them I don't want to talk to them in doctor speak. I don't want to, you know, assume that they're going to understand these, you know, medical terms and this medical jargon. I have to break it down into bite-sized pieces, but then add my own um, analogies that will then help them understand it. So where I think that for us, you know, being of color and growing up in Baltimore, going to Spelman, going to, you know, um, Howard. I know that I can have a conversation with people that look like me and they're going to understand the, the, the colloquialism. They're going to understand the analogies I use. So I now become more relatable compared to say someone that doesn't look like them. Okay. So I can kind of use all of that to, to approach um, medicine in the manner that I approach medicine. And you will do the same, you, you know, your unique experiences are going to allow you to talk to your patient in a way that is going to have patients love you and come to you. And you're going to have your own patient base that is going to love the way that Dr. Sakai gives them medicine. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really, really like satisfying and fulfilling. And you're like, oh, this is this is what I wanted to do. This is gives me joy. This is, you know. 
this right here is the bee's knees, you know? But it takes you, I mean, you know, it's a journey. It's a journey. But I tell you, you are girl, almost a decade ahead of where I was. Like I wish, I wish, you know, that that I was um, mentally where you are at your age. I'm, it's still, it's definitely a journey and still finding balance and things like that. And I really yeah. resonated with the part about using that critical thinking and trying to and call in your patients rather than just spew out all these different facts and rush through things. Cause I've had, right. I've had so many doctors that have done that and I'm just left in the dark. Like, what was that? What the hell? Yeah. And then they ended out, right? Yeah. And then they get out. But I did learn that too, when I was doing research, because I had to present in front of the whole school, what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so I would say the stuff, like the scientific things and be like, okay, so what does this all mean? What is this in English mm -hmm. and breaking it down? And I think that's what separated me from a lot of my peers that were also doing research because a lot of them were just like, yes, and that's code and that's how you and that's what you do. And that's the process using all these big words. And people were like, mm -hmm. what I liked most about what you did was that I, I felt like I would be able to do it because I know what you're talking about. I know what right. they mean. And so I'm finding that those skills will be super important later on um, and can translate to different facets of my medical journey. So. Oh, absolutely. Let me tell you, you always want to be approachable. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's what you did for them is you made yourself relatable and approachable. What I can say I see in medicine, um, you know, I, I always have patients when I go in, it doesn't matter if I'm in my office or the urgent care setting. They I hear all the time, man, I never had a doctor talk to me that way or break it down to me that way. Or I wish my doctor was like you. And I tell them, your doctor should be. In medicine, we, and we're getting a lot better with it. We have this patriarchal way of seeing things. It's like, this is the science, you know, and this is what I think you should do. And you do it because I said it. Versus the patient is an advocate, is their body. And now I have to break down the science to them so that they can relate it. But also you want them to feel safe with you to divulge all of the things they may have never shared with anyone else. Mm -hmm. So how do you bridge that gap in between of delivering the science, helping them understand they're an advocate for themselves, but help them feel comfortable sharing it? And the only way to do that is to be relatable. If they think that you're here and they're there, they're never going to share or, or, or the manner in which they share is going to be one of power. Yeah. That's not, that never felt good to me. You know, I don't, I don't think that I'm better than anyone. I know that I can learn from everyone. I mean, my kids teach me all the time. I don't care, you know, what walk of life you come from. And I know that's just how I was raised. Like no one's better than anyone. Everyone is here on earth for a reason. Therefore, I can learn from them. And I have to be able to relate to them mm -hmm. in order to, to be the best compassionate and understanding non-judgmental doctor that I can be. So I have patients who literally will just, they'll say, oh, I've never told anyone this. I don't know how, I, I never talk to my doctors like, and I'm like, you should, you know what I mean? Like, I want you to feel safe because it's your body. I want you to be healthy. 
And so when you can become relatable and you can use your shared experiences because what you've experienced and what your other classmates have experienced, y'all have a shared experience. And now you have a knowledge base that they may not be privy to, but how do you get that knowledge and disseminate that knowledge to them is through that shared experience by breaking it down so that they can, you put it in terms that's relatable. That is going to serve you well in your practice. That's what's going to carry you. And that's what we want. You know, if you're going to, you know, take care of mainly black and brown people, that has been our um, struggle is that we are constantly told what to do, how to do it. We don't know any better. Do it because I said it. And then what happens is people don't come to the doctor. They don't share, right? They don't do what you're supposed to, what, what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. Because now they're put off. They see do- a doctor as a know-it-all who just wants to tell me what to do. They don't have my best interest, interest in mind. They don't look like me. So why go? Yeah. And that that part makes me upset too, because to me, when you become a doctor, you commit to being a lifelong student and you commit to collaboration and you commit to learning. So it hurts when you see doctors being like that, like, well, I'm the doctor, so I know what I'm talking about. Like, sometimes you may not always know what you're talking about, even though you've done all the, all the learning, all the studying, all the practicing, all that, you can always learn from other people. And it's about collaboration. Um, And people should think of medicine and health in the same sense. Absolutely. I learn from my patients all the time. It's your body, not mine. Like I know theoretically what the body should do, but you're still an individual person and what your body does, only you know, because you've been in that body, right? So who am I to come in and say, you need to do it this way because this is what the literature said. That makes no sense at all, right? And it definitely doesn't make for a good um, relationship to help them become healthy. Mm -hmm. which is the ultimate goal. And absolutely, you can learn from everybody, everybody. And you should never think that you know it all. If you feel like you know it all and you can't learn, you definitely should not be practicing medicine because medicine changes, it's evolving, it's dynamic. Every single day, something is changing. So never feel like you can't be humble enough to say, I don't know, Mm -hmm. right? I, I, don't, I don't know. And, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, you shouldn't say you don't know because they expect you to be the expert or they expect you to be this. Well, first off, let's dis- dispel all these expectations. Yes, I know a lot. I know more than most, but I still don't know everything. Not in, in regard, in the context and in, in the way that it may come across. So it may be, okay, I'm not sure about how that relates to what I know. So let me figure out where the gap is between what you're asking and what I do know. Because truly that's what you don't know is that information between what you know and what the person's asking. So how do I fill in that gap? Well, one, I got to be humble enough to say, I don't know. I'm not going to fudge it because the minute you start trying to fudge it, now you've lost trust. Because the person just says, oh, okay, they think they know what they're, they're talking about. I know that that doesn't work for me or that doesn't make sense to me. Are they just trying to pretend that they're smart? Right now you've lost trust. Mm-hmm. 
Because most people know that the doctor's smart, but they also don't think that the doctor knows everything. And I can tell you for sure, we ain't got all the common sense as to say by a whole lot of medicine that you see. Like, okay, as smart as they are, why would that doctor do that? Well, because we don't, we don't know everything. And so it's, it's actually, you know, putting doctors here on this hierarchy. And I hate that that society has done that. You know, and so there's an expectation, I think, for physicians that we need to know everything. And if we don't, then what is society going to think of us? Well, if we just become a little more humble and say, I don't know it all, but I'm willing to find out. I'm willing to do the research. I'm willing to, you know, bring the information with what I do know and help fill in those gaps. I think that, you know, they would look at doctors a little differently and, and, and that makes them relatable. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? That make you feel like you better than them. Because I have patients all the time like, oh, you don't act like my, now you don't act like my average doctor. Exactly. And I ain't trying to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to act like that. I don't want to be not approachable. I want my, you know, patients when they see me in the community, be like, yeah, that's my doctor. And I can go up and say hi to her and, you know, bring their, you know, family or their children and say, this is my doctor and I can relate to all of them. Right? That's what's going to help them be healthy. Because now when I say, hey, I think you should do X, Y, and Z, they're going to be like, yeah, she's approachable. She's smart. She knows what she's talking about. And I trust that what she's advising me to do is going to work. Now the patient is actually more inclined to do what it is you need for them to do for their health. Yes, definitely. Let me ask you another question. So we talked about- Yes. We talked about gaps. We talked about distrust starting to form. Um, yes. Can you tell me about some encounters you've had with health disparities? Um, oh. Whether it dealt with a past patient, family member, working in public health in a sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's so many accounts. So I would say um, health disparities, it, it, one that, of course, definitely comes to mind would be HIV, Mm -hmm. okay? And this would be my time while I was at Howard. Um, During that time that I was there, it was from 2004 to 2009. Mm -hmm. And in DC, we had the highest rates of HIV in the country, but also um, compared to um, certain parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, Mm -hmm. right? But, we only had data that was um, that were AIDS data. We didn't know how much HIV was in in the region, in the in the district. And that's a HIV is a spectrum. Like you don't just go from having HIV to having AIDS. You have HIV for a while, and then your immune system becomes suppressed, and over time, it develops to AIDS. Mm-hmm. But what the district only had was the AIDS data. They didn't have all of the stuff in between. So I didn't realize it until I got there because where I, where I trained, there was HIV, but you know I didn't have a large portion of patients that had HIV. But when I was at Howard in my intern year, if I had 10 people on the service that I was responsible for, eight of them had HIV. And I was thinking to myself, like, why do so many people, why do they have so much HIV here. It's like crazy to me. Well, then after that year, that's when I did the NIH re- clinical research fellow, um, was a fellow in Howard's um, hospital setting, 
My boss was the assistant VP who was an infectious diseases doctor. And our um, study that we did outside of my own personal study was to figure out the prevalence of HIV in the District of Columbia and try to figure out um, why we didn't have it. And the reason we didn't have it was because of access to care. Because people were interfacing in their doctor's offices and in the hospital setting, but they were not tested for HIV. We only diagnosed them after they had it and their immune system was so suppressed that they now had AIDS. Mm -hmm. So we had to devise a study that one, diagnosed them. So we had the first and largest HIV study that um, tested, it was a testing center, tested in every area of the hospital setting, the first in the country. So regardless of how you entered into the hospital, whether or not you were passing through, because I don't know if you know, they will go from the back of the hospital to the front of the hospital, just so they don't have to walk around the hospital to get on Georgia Avenue. So they were cut through the hospital and they were coming in to see the doctor. They were, you know, admitted through the hospital, through the emergency room. But any way they came into the hospital, they were offered an HIV test because we wanted to improve the um, the access for people to have it because they weren't getting it in the hospital. They weren't getting it in the doctor's office. And so by improving that access, we could now diagnose people with HIV early and get them connected to care. Because now that we diagnose them, we got to now get them into a doctor's office to get their medicine because we don't want them to get AIDS. Right. So that was a health disparity that we have people in the community that have HIV and they don't know they have it. Mm -hmm. So in order to slow down the rate of transmission of HIV is to now test people and let them know they have it. Well, we gotta give them access and that's how we gave them access. Also, when we give them access, we just can't say, hey, you got HIV. We now gotta connect you to care. We now gotta connect you into the infectious Department where we can give you medicine to um, you can now safely have a baby and not give it to your your baby. You don't have to give it to your spouse. You don't have to develop AIDS. You don't have to die from HIV. And the only way to do that is to improve access to care. But that was a huge health disparity. And you know who that affected? That affected us. Mm -hmm. Okay, because DC was largely a black city. But not only just DC, it bordered on Virginia and bordered on Maryland. So we had people accessing our hospital system from, you know, even though they lived in DC and Maryland, coming into Howard for treatment and care. Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. Um, so why do you think that our representation as Black women in medicine is important? Well, for sure, because for a couple of things. One, we people that look like us need to see us, mm -hmm. right? There, if they if they see someone that looks like us, they're then going to say, okay, one, I can do that, or two, now I trust them to make sure that my, because they're going to um, know that they are in an environment that someone that looks like them wants to make sure that they're healthy. So that's where representation matters. Also, we know that there is a lot of institutional racism 
not just in the educational system, but in a hospital system as well. Mm -hmm. So we have many doctors who don't have our best interests in mind at all. They're not going to give us the access to care. So you have read where, you know, hey, let's say we have, we're more prone to having heart disease and having heart attacks, but they're not giving us the access to getting cardiac catheterization. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they don't think that, you know, our life matters. They don't think that we're really in pain. They don't trust what we're saying, right? The patient, or if they do believe them, they say, hey, you need to take this medicine. But the patient is like, I don't trust you. So I ain't going to take it. So now you have this push and pull between the doctor and the patient, right? Yeah. So it's important that if we're having these conversations, the conversation is going to be met um, in a lot more um, congenial manner. It comes from someone that looks like them. Yeah. It goes back to even when I was in school. Mm -hmm. I knew that I learned better by people that look like me. I'm, which is why I did, you know, my residency where I did my residency because my learning and being a um, patient, you are like a student, you are learning about your body. You are learning from your, your doctor. I could not adequately learn in the manner that was best for me to thrive in a setting that um, was not representative of who I am Mm -hmm. I didn't receive it well the same thing translates to the patient encounter so if the patient can't receive the information that's being delivered by this physician because of all of the things then they're not going to be healthy they're not going to thrive so representation is critical one because the patient sees themselves in you but also you see yourself in the patient right? If I have a black woman that comes in, I'm like, oh, that could be me mm-hmm. in X years. Or that was me when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that she's healthy. I know what questions to ask. Oh, she comes from the same community I came from. So now I understand her because we have a shared experience. Mm-hmm. The person that doesn't look like them may not understand that experience. So they're, they have all these different notions of why this person might not be compliant with their medication. I saw it in HIV all the time. You know, it's just like, well, why aren't they taking their medication? They're just non-compliant. No, let's figure out why they're non-compliant. Well, you have somebody that is, has HIV and neural medications that have to be refrigerated. Well, this person doesn't work a regular nine to five. They may work in a factory. They may work overnight. So they don't have access to a refrigerator. So they can't refrigerate their medication. So now their HIV is not where it needs to be, not because they don't want it, want it to be, they do, but their lifestyle is not conducive to a lifestyle that you're accustomed to. Yeah, you're, you're accustomed to a nine to five, mm-hmm. right? So, right. but if you don't understand that, if you don't have that shared experience, say, okay, well, yeah, I remember, you know, growing up, my mother may have, or my father may have, or my cousin may have, or my auntie may have had to work these odd hours to make ends meet. Mm, Yeah, I could see how how that might be a problem. Or this person may not have a refrigerator. How do they make it work? Mm -hmm. Right? But if you are here, and if you're here, and you're thinking, and think you're better than, and you don't 
you can't relate to that person, you'll never get them where they need to be. You'll never get them to be able to thrive like they need to because you don't have that shared experience. You can't relate to them. Right. Which is why you need someone that looks like you. Because even if, let's say for instance, I have children who are living a life that I could, can't, couldn't imagine because that just was not my life. My kids are rich kids. Thank God, because I was in school for a long time. Their experience, they can't relate to even how I grew up, right? But they can relate to social injustice, mm-hmm. right? They can relate to racism. Mm-hmm. I try my best to make sure that they understand, yes, they are privileged to have the life that they have. And not everybody has that, even some of their own family members, right? I make sure that they are um, immersed in our culture. So they're not then going to become this person who is not relatable. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Mm -hmm. I'm also noticing that there are some gaps that are forming because dermatology is still considered elective. Um, on some insurances. And I'm noticing that people aren't getting what they need um, because insurance companies are dictating what you need to be healthy when people don't realize that there's so many social, ethical, racial, (laughs) mental um, implications to dermatology because not only are you helping someone achieve their skin goals and build up their self-esteem, but someone could be in pain someone could be mm-hmm. hurting, but somehow, yeah. like, I think it's extremely ridiculous that it's still considered something elective when to me, it's something that everyone needs a little bit of. Yeah, yeah, so you touched on so many things. Like one, I definitely agree. For one, they, the insurance company believe that if it's not gonna kill you, then it's not that bad, which I get. They're not gonna put the money, they wanna put the money into the things that are going to, be more life-threatening, but they're also not considering the psychological component because we all know that how you present yourself to the world is how you're gonna be received by the world, right? And so if you don't feel confidently entering into the world, then you're not gonna be received. You're not getting the jobs. You don't, you're, you're suffering from depression. It hurts. You don't like the way it looks. You want to present yourself a certain way. Then on top of it, you add the component of, lack of access to care. You don't have access to even enough black dermatologists to get an appointment. Like you got something going on today, but you can't get in for three, four or five months sometimes. Well, whatever went on has either gotten worse or it's over. Mm-hmm. So lack of access of representation from black people that want to deal with skin is there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's because they don't think that it's super important. So they don't have enough residencies to accommodate more people. But then it, it touches on the elitism in medicine too, unfortunately, yes. where the elitism in medicine is that we're not going to train people that look like you or, and also with, um, in medicine, I'll say in the Durham world in and of itself, if I had to get on my soapbox about them is that, you know, they make it hard to get in and don't realize there are, and, and this is for like black folks in particular, they get in there and realize there are a minority of black dermatologists and they'll make sweeping statements like, well, you need to see a black dermatologist, follow up with a black dermatologist see this. And I'm thinking, you can say that because you live in DC, Atlanta, New York. Like, 
black people in Ohio, black people in Tennessee, they ain't got a black person to go to. Stop saying that. We, you have not arrived. Like, don't think you're all that and feel like I've arrived. Therefore, you need to come see me. I'm special. You are, but everybody don't have access to you. So how do we improve the access there? Well, we got to open it up for other people to be able to do those same things. So it's so multifaceted, you know, you got the insurance company here saying it's not important. And then you have the, the folks over here are saying, yeah, you need to do this, but you don't have nobody to go to that look like you. Then the people that look like you are saying only come to me, but they live miles away. I can't get to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? So what do you do? What, you know, what do you do? And so that's what I'm, I want to improve. Like dealing with skin for certain issues is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. You just got to like it enough. Mm-hmm. There's so many other doctors who could do what I do. They just don't like it, mm-hmm. right? They don't like it enough to immerse themselves in the data and, and into the research and into, you know, all the, you know, the trialing and the error. They don't, they're not, it's just not fascinating enough to them. So it has to be fascinating enough to you. But, you know, even with that, you, you, you got to know that even your representation matters, Right. And that we don't need all the titles and all of that stuff to go with it to say that you're qualified to to do it, right? Because there are plenty of estheticians out here that do a fabulous job, nurses that do a fabulous job. We got to improve the access. And so I can't sit here and think that I'm special, right? Uh, So you only need to come to me because I'm so special like that. You'll see, that annoys me, you know, um, and it gets on a deeper level just on um, what, racism has done to us it's like you know I think it's still a big deal to say oh I'm the first to do this I'm the first person to do this and that and the approach is that's that's actually sad like my husband was the third um black orthopedic surgeon to ever practice in Memphis and he got here in 2010 wow and though that's nice to say that it's sad to say that like what in a city of black folks you mean to tell me you're the third ever and it's 2010 yeah and there, there's still, there are no more that came in. Mm. And he's been practicing for 10 years. Wow. That so it's bananas, right? Yeah. It's bananas. So with all these, where do you think that they got to go to somewhere and they want to go to someone that looks like them. Mm-hmm. So what happens is they go to these larger groups, larger white groups, and they're not treated kind. So when my husband comes, he's like blows up in no time. Why? Because people are like, oh my God, finally someone that looks like me that's going to care about me, know that I might not want surgery, I might want something else. And so then that pisses off some of the, the white guys because they're like, oh, he's coming in and taking a p- portion of what? Well, no, that should be your goal too, is to have someone in your practice that looks like the people you're trying to serve. Or you need to get out of your own mind trash and deliver care to them in a compassionate manner, regardless of their race. But then on my husband's side, like, don't think you're special because you've arrived, you know, like, oh, I got my medical degree and now I'm special because I'm the third ever. Mm-hmm. I see, you know, it's, it annoys me that, you know, um, we shouldn't be happy with being the first anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, I mean, it's great, but really we want to be happy about celebrating we're the first. And what happens is for that person, depending on their level of maturity, they start to think that they're better than the rest of black people yeah. you're not <laughs> you're, you're not the red. you're not better than them you are not. of anybody you know 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think about that quite a bit. It just, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about. I never thought about it that way. Like hearing, like I talked to a doctor earlier this morning. She was the first mm-hmm. person to open a dentistry practice in a county, let alone being the first black woman. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that seems like a lot of pressure, but it's scary that that's, that you're the first in 2018 when you opened it. Um, but you, like, aren't we tired of saying I'm the first? I mean, it's great to say you've accomplished this task. Don't get me wrong. But why still celebrate the fact that you're the first to do it? Like we should want people behind us to help guide us and know that now we can service a larger area because I'm not the only one here doing it. Like that is just, it's just bananas to me. I even see it even in like, um, you know, skincare in, in the product category. It's like, oh, she's the first one to have this product out. Like what? I want to see a thousand options for black people for skin on the shelves. Like, yes. we only see what, like what? I, yeah, I, that's special. I'm glad yours is up there, girl. But can we have like 10 more? Yes. I, because your line might not work for me. I mean, can I like? <laughs> yeah, I want to see more. Um, and for a long time, I was like, okay, well, cosmetic chemistry. I need to get into that, make my mm-hmm. own products because I'm so tired of doing the extra research, the extra Googling, trying mm-hmm. to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And then seeing in the ingredients that, oh my God, there's fragrance. I can't do that. I can't put that on my face. Mm-hmm. Like as much exactly. as I want before, I can't because it's not going to work for me. Right. So that's where representation matters. And we have to not box other people out from, um, box other people out that you may feel don't belong there because they didn't do it the way you want. You think they should have done it Mm -hmm. because they chose not to put themselves in a box and they have now decided I'm going to show up in the world fully as myself and contribute who I am. And because I don't look like you, that doesn't make you better than me. Mm-hmm. In fact, we should celebrate that. Like, dang, okay. We need to figure out how to make more of me and more of you. Yeah. Because now we can give more to everybody versus just a small little pocket here and there. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my last question for you is. Yes. Um, what advice can you give to any future physicians or physicians going into residency and or getting started on their journey to medicine um that to who English okay sorry (laughs) what is the advice you can give to us um Mm -hmm. to allow us to heal more holistically and in a way that's culturally Mm -hmm. competent yes so I would say first and foremost you know my mantra has always been being do not put yourself in a box We are needed in so many areas of medicine. Don't think that you have to become a doctor to practice in a hospital setting, to practice in a clinic setting. And that's the only way you're going to serve your community. We need doctors that understand all facets of medicine, whether it be in the sciences, in research, in policy, but also in the hospital setting, also in the clinic setting, and also in whatever combination and creative way you can think of delivering medicine to our people. Do not put yourself in a box. The world needs for you to show up in a manner 
that you can creatively see medicine going. Mm -hmm. So if that means that you mixing and matching all of these different things and experiences and degrees and, you know, um, um, extracurricular activities that's going to make you the unicorn that you are, don't be afraid to do it and don't let anyone make you feel that you are not worthy of showing up for the world in that manner. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. That would be my advice. Thank you so much for coming on You're today. Welcome. You. I learned so much in oh, an hour. Great. And I am so excited for you have no idea. I am like over the moon and so overjoyed. I mean, it is a blessing that we get to have you at Spelman and walk the campus and give us all of that good knowledge and experience that you have and make Spelman a better institution. I mean, I know you think that you were lucky to get in, but no, Spelman is so lucky to have you. And we cannot wait to see all the beautiful things that you do, how you use your education to help change the world. I'm so and hopefully I see you at homecoming, girl. <laughs> yes, I will be there. And hopefully I get a chance to visit you since you won't be too far from Atlanta. Yes, absolutely. So right now my office is closed and I'm trying to figure out like how I'll reopen. I'm, um, you know, I have my own skincare line. So I'm actually trying to uh, do some things on that front and I'm doing things virtually, but I'm thinking I'll open up sometime in the late summer, early fall. But when we open, make sure you stay in contact with me. You have my number. We have a relationship now. I can be your mentor. If you have any questions along the way, rec letters of recommendation, if you want to come here on your breaks and just shadow me, the doors are always open. Okay, you just let me know. I really appreciate it. I will definitely be keeping in contact with you. Let yes. me know how my experience is at Spelman now. Yes. And, I and when you get there, my goddaughter, actually, I think Mia will be a senior. I want to say she's, she might be a senior. So when you get there, make sure you look up Nia Dumas. She's an SGA. She just crossed Delta. Um, I think Nia will be a senior. I lost track. See, COVID has like thrown me all off. So I think Nia might be a senior, but she is Wonderful. She's from um, Virginia originally, but her parents just moved down to um, Atlanta, but she will show you around. She is just a joy. She is just the bomb. You, you would know Nia, trust me. She has literally gone there and made a huge impact on the campus in such a short period of time. She worked with Stacey Abrams on her, um, her voting campaign. Wow. So yeah, make sure you let her say hey I met my auntie and say you better look out, looking out for you too don't tell her your mama at Delta but she won't find out but she needs to look out for you in the low because you know eight a cat but they don't play they don't <laughs> they don't play and Nia's mom is a Delta as well I'm an AKA but Nia's mom is a, a Delta and we're best friends her mom went to uh, Morgan State and um so I knew Nia was going to be pledging when she got to got to Spelman. We were just hoping she would make a line and not she was going to have to do grad chapter. But we knew she was going to be a Delta. But make sure that, you know, she kind of introduced you to the right people. So when it's your time, you ain't got no drama. Okay? Yes. I definitely, get on that line. 
I definitely need to find contacts um, that are currently in Ada Kappa. Um, yes. I, I don't know if I should or should not bring up the fact that my mom is a part of it. Or no, I would know. They go, they gonna know what? Girl, they gonna know. They gonna find out. They gonna know when your mother come on the yard. First of all, how they not gonna know when she come on the yard with her Delta? <laughs> yeah, you're right. They gonna be like, oh, your mom is Delta. With all her stuff from the Delta Box subscription on her. Your girl, right? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely so you don't have to say anything just always remain humble make sure that you are super nice just as you are you're gonna be some you know little heifers on the yard don't get me wrong because that's just how you know chicks they they can't help but being women and so you just let it roll with the punches and you make sure that you just you know introduce yourself to everyone and this is why I'm telling you you need to make sure you meet Nia because she's going to do the introduction for you. So when you have someone in your circle, you don't have to work as hard. Now, don't take it for granted because then they'll be like, oh, well, she just knows she's going to, you know, don't be like that. But they will make sure that you are in the right spaces. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're in the right spaces. Nia Dumas. Right yep. Nia Dumas. And she's on Instagram too. So I'll make sure that I, I'm going to send her a text to make sure she looks out for you. And um, I'm pretty sure she'll probably be working with the, with the freshman class with some stuff anyway, because she's on SGA. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. Okay. So I may see her when I move in. We move in, yeah. we move in so early. We oh, when do you guys move in? Move in August 10th. Oh, Yeah. But then the returners come back the 15th or 16th. Okay. So they give you the five days to do your freshman week. Mm-hmm. Girl, you're about to have so, when I tell you. I hope that we can have a full experience now. Because I know. Absolutely. My friend, she is um, a rising sophomore now. And she oh, didn't nice. have any of that. All of it was on oh. her whole Oh my gosh. That freshman week, oh my goodness, that freshman week was so much fun. My Morehouse brother and I are still very tight to this day. In fact, I introduced him to Nia's mom. So he's Nia's stepdad, but I introduced them. That's how tight we were. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say her mom started dating him when Nia was like three or four. And then they got married. And then um, that freshman week, man, is so much fun. I was actually Miss Freshman. I was also Miss Senior. Well, we had, there were three Miss Seniors, but I was Miss Freshman. I stepped for the freshman dorm um, while I was there and I was Miss Senior. So freshman, I'm telling you, girl, your freshman week is all that in a bag of chips. That's when you're going to meet like your crew. Your mm-hmm. crew that's going to rock with you the whole time usually comes from your freshman dorm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you want that? Yeah, you yeah because i'm telling you and that's spelman too like the deltas and the ak's they didn't really have riff who you had riff was with was who's who's freshman dorm they stay it's like you say where and it wasn't like riff but you know that's where the rivalry became was the freshman dorm not the sororities the sororities you actually were clipped up because you stayed with them your freshman year mm-hmm. so that's not yeah where the competition came yeah they're gonna start calling us the nerds in llc <laughs> my mom said that's what they called they, they were yeah nerds. but everybody's a nerd that's the funny thing exactly. but yeah y'all like the super nerds y'all are like you're the actually the nerds. first person i've talked to um that actually has a relationship with their morehouse brother all oh, the other man. people including my mom 
some of my friends that have matriculated through Spelman have not maintained contact with the Morehouse brothers. I know. And I always thought that was weird because I was like, it's a family. Like, it really, I'm telling you. Well, because a lot of the Morehouse guys, they would try to push up on their Spelman sister or, you know what I mean? Whereas me and my Morehouse brother, we like took it serious. Like that was like my dog. That I mean, I went home with him. For, he was from New York. So we would ride, he would ride home together and he would drop me off in Maryland and he'd go up to New York. Then I would go up and see him in New York. I was like, I put him on his freshman year because when I was running from his freshman, um, I sang as my um, my talent and I brought him up on stage. And so I like gave him life on the yard. So he was forever grateful, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I like introduced them, and, but we just remained super, super tight. And, but I, I agree, not everybody has. We did have a unique bond, but it's what you make it, right? It's what you make it. And yeah. so that's what we chose. We were like, no, you are like my brother and, I, and his whole family, they're like my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank yeah. you so much for coming on. I'm so yeah, glad to speak with you. I've learned so much. Um, and I can't wait to keep in contact with you. Yes. And give your mommy a big hug and a kiss for me. I will. I will. Yes. Good luck with everything, sweetie. And please don't hesitate to reach out, okay? Okay. And I'm happy to speak with your daughters when they're getting to the college. Oh prep stage I mean they're they're almost there so I know that's the scary part girl don't remind me I know <laughs> it's scary yes thank you I really appreciate it and we will talk soon okay thank you so much all right sweetie take care Have a good week.